And we expect a lot from the Lord today. We expect his spirit to work mightily through the preached word. And if this is your first time with us, we've just begun a new series in the book of 1 Samuel, an Old Testament book that tells an incredible story. It's a book that's about the establishment of Israel's first king, their disappointment at that king, and their longing for a better king. When all the while, the God who had gathered them, the God who had given them a name, the God who had called them his own people and said, I will be your God, was there all along. Their king, who was and is and always will be. This book is about the king who is. Even though Israel had set themselves up as little kings over their own kingdoms and looked to other lesser kings, It's this tension that constantly occurs within this book. And two weeks ago, we read the story of the birth of Samuel, the the prophet, the priest whom God would use to usher in the age of kings in Israel. And he's now a godly young man serving in the tabernacle, contrasted in today's passage with two other men who, uh, well, weren't, (laughs) weren't quite so godly. So with that, would you read along with me in 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests, speaking of these sons, with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, "'Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw.'" And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, Samuel was ministering before the Lord a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. 
If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men." And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. This shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word which is given to us to instruct us, to reprove us, to correct us, to counsel us, to guide us, to reveal yourself to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the word made flesh. We pray that we would encounter him above all today, that we would behold him today and that he would be magnificent in our eyes, that he would be glorified, that we would receive him by faith. And that as we believe on him, that we would receive the grace upon grace that has been made available through his cross. Would you be gracious and merciful to us today? Amen. The, the message of First Samuel is 
that the, the king we want is not the king that we need. We serve other and lesser kings. We, we fancy ourselves kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. But the king is. God is king. And he is a good king. And he is a perfect king. And wouldn't it be nice if we could just turn from serving ourselves and lesser kings and, and, just, and, and just slip right back into God's kingdom? If we could just turn and go, my bad, sorry, I'm coming back, serve you now, Lord. For instance, for those of you who have jobs, who work on nine to five, going to work on Monday, imagine you don't come in for work. You know, you've got some Netflix to catch up on, you have some tacos to consume and then recover from. You, you've, you've got some sleep to, to catch up on, and you don't come in for work. And in fact, you don't come in for, say, six months. You have a lot of Netflix to, to catch up on. And then after six months, you waltz back into the office, you high-five your coworkers, you sit down at your desk in your office, and your boss walks by your office, and you give him a big old thumbs up, and he says, and you go, hey, boss, how you doing? Paycheck's coming this week, Right? A similar scene plays out in 1 Samuel 15, 12, or 13 chapters ahead of right here with a man named Agag, king of the people called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, they, they, had, they had cruelly oppressed Israel for generations. They, they had brutally and mercilessly ravaged Israel for decades, when they were coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites actually attacked the back of the train of people coming out of Egypt. And in the back of the train of people are who? The women and the children and the sick, right? And then for generation after generation, the Amalekites continued to ravage Israel. And so God commanded Israel to utterly destroy them when Saul was made king. And, and so Israel defeats the Amalekites in, in battle, and, and they take Agag captive. And Agag is brought before Samuel and Saul. And Agag says, hey, surely the bitterness of death is past, right? In, in other words, he's, he's saying, come on, guys. Let's let bygones be bygones, right? The battle's over. We're good. Now, listen, your boss may be a good boss. But by not showing up for six months, you've messed up. God is a good God. But by slaughtering God's people, Agag had messed up. And friends, yes, we desperately need a better king. But because we have rejected the king who is, we have messed up. We can't just strut right into his kingdom. And that's what this passage here teaches us today, that a better king does us no good if we remain enemies of the king. We have to overcome that first. You take six months off from your job, you better expect to be fired well before you come back. <laughs> 
probably after day three or so. The writing's on the wall. In 1 Samuel 15, in, in response to Agag's peace gesture, it, it's, it's a brutal scene. Samuel takes out his sword, and, and the wording of Samuel's response is that he hacked Agag to pieces. And friends, in our sin, we have set ourselves up as enemies of the king. If we want to have any hope of getting back to him, we we need not only a better king, we need someone to make us right with the king again. In Old Testament terminology, the person who played this role was called a priest. And in 1 Samuel 2, we meet Israel's priests at that time. Men named Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were a total sham. Just a sham. Israel needed a better priest. But through their story, God showed Israel that they needed to take sin seriously. In other words... Israel needed to see their need for a priest, and then they needed to see that they needed a better priest. And those two needs map right onto our lives. We're supposed to see our our human experience in light of Israel here. And so, so there are two needs that we have today as we approach 1 Samuel 2. And they're the same as Israel. We we need one to take sin seriously. And two, we need a better priest. If you're taking notes, those will be the two points for the rest of our time today, that you need to take sin seriously and you need a better priest. And and priests may not be a category for your daily life right now. And I'll explain what it is that a priest does and functions as. But this is also the second office office that's introduced in 1 Samuel. The, the, the people of Israel, they, they need a king. They need someone to rule over them. But their problem is even deeper than a need for a ruler, the need for, for order in their lives. They need someone to bring them back to a king. So first, you need to take sin seriously. One commentator says, in this chapter, God is so quietly at work, that we can't hear him. But the mess is so visible that we cannot miss it. Now remember, Israel herself was a mess. A kingdom without a king, everyone living like their own many kings. And as that, as that mess got worse and worse and worse, we meet the spiritual leaders whose example they were following. And, you, and we find out, oh, this is how they got where they are. Eli, the high priest at the at the time, and in Shiloh, which was the spiritual center of Israel, where the tabernacle was, which is where God himself dwelt, where, where priests would offer sacrifices daily to atone for the sins of people, constantly offering sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people to make them right with God, at least for the time being, again. Very solemn ritual in this old covenant world of Israel. These priests are charged with with a solemn duty, offering sacrifices to atone for the sin of the people that they might be reconciled to God. And Hophni and Phinehas, 
They're the sons of the high priest, so they have a pretty high standing in Israel. And verse 12 describes them as worthless men. (laughs) That's about as condemning an introduction as anybody could receive, especially ministers of the Lord, worthless men. And as people came to make their sacrifices at the tabernacle, Hophni and Phinehas would send their servants with the infamous three-pronged fork, and they would just plunge it into the pot or the kettle or or whatever uh, was being used to cook the meat. And whatever it came up with, they'd walk away with. And, And they became more bold as they realized, hey, this is sort of working. We're getting some pretty good food. So it became even more bold. They would approach people before the sacrifice was burned, and they would demand the best cuts. Now, according to Leviticus 17, priests were already allotted the the breast and the right leg. That was their portion that had been allotted to them. It was how God cared for his priestly line and made sure that they were fed. But Hophni and Phinehas, they didn't want brisket and rump roast They wanted top sirloin and filet mignon. That's right, kids. These kids know their steaks. And listen, if the people said, if they they resisted and said, no, 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 this is dedicated to the Lord, which would be the appropriate response. No, this is is my sacrifice to the Lord that I, I, I might be reconciled back to him. Would you please not take this? then those servants would turn thug and take it by force. Further, as they became even more bold, we learn in verse 22, look at verse 22, Hophni and Phinehas were using the women who humbly served the Lord at the tabernacle as their own cult prostitutes. They were turning the tabernacle into a brothel. And the conclusion about their spiritual state, look back at verse 12. They did not know the Lord. The men charged with leading God's people to the Lord themselves didn't know the Lord. And amidst all of this, you start thinking, where's Eli? Where's the high priest? Well, at some point, he finally steps in and confronts his boys in verses 22 through 25. And and mind you, in, in all of this, Eli is, is presented as, as a personally godly man, but, but he was charged with the leadership of Israel. So he finally confronts them in verses 22 through 25, and he says, what you're doing is not good, boys. You need to stop this. But by this point, it's already too late. God had already rendered his verdict. Look at verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put him, to put them to death. It's a chilling statement, isn't it? They wouldn't listen to their father because the Lord willed to put them to death. It wasn't that because they didn't listen to their father, then God said, okay, well, if you're that obstinate, then here's the verdict. Now they had, they had sinned, they, they had essentially spit on the sacrifices that were meant to atone for sin. 
And they turned God's house into, into their personal brothel. And God was so outraged by their sins that he resolved to punish them with death and made them deaf to their father's correction. Now what's happening here? What one commentator says, someone can remain so firm in their rebellion that God will confirm them in it. So much so that they will remain utterly deaf to and unmoved by warnings of judgment or pleas for repentance. That God would essentially say, listen, if you are so committed to your rebellion against me and if you want your sin and its consequences that badly, then I'll give it to you. That, that God would respond to incessant rebellion against him in that way is well established throughout Scripture. Mark 3.29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Hebrews 6.4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Romans 1.28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Now, be careful how you respond to this. Some people will become God's prosecutors and, and God's critics, charging him with being unmerciful. Others may be intellectually curious about the mechanics of the hardening of heart. At what precise point in sin's progress does it become impossible to repent? At what point do, do, have we crossed the point of no return? But listen, both the critic and the curious are wrong. Our place is not to question God. Our place is not primarily to comprehend how this happens. Our place is to tremble before a God who can justly make sinners deaf to the very call of repentance. See, this should, this should be chilling to us. Even Eli's question in verse 25 should strike at least a little bit of terror into our hearts. He says, look at the beginning of verse 25. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Friends, when, the, when God, the holy and righteous creator and king of all, is sinned against, Judgment is a just response. God has no obligation to mercy. He doesn't owe us anything. Who, who, who can stand in the gap and intercede for the one who has sinned against that God? And listen, it wasn't just the, the blatantly disgusting sins of Hophni and Phinehas that offended God. Eli had sinned against God too. And, and we're not going to get into the, the depths of the details of the text, but in verses 27 through 34, God sends a prophet, a prophet whose name we, we never find out, to relay a message to Eli that he too was under God's judgment, that, that though God had given him and his family through Aaron, his, his ancestor, this, this priestly line, God was stripping it away. Further, verse 34, he learns that his son's 
will die on the same day, which happens in, in chapter 4. What was Eli's sin? He let his sons continue being priests. He should have said, you guys are done. You want to continue doing this? You have no business spiritually leading God's people. Yeah, he confronted them, but he went no further. He couldn't stop their immoral behavior, but he could have stopped them from doing it as priests. And so God strips Eli of his privilege of priesthood. And the point here, friends, is that there is no distinction. When, e when Eli says, who can intercede for someone who sins against God? The point is that all sin is against God. We're all accountable to him. The point is that all sin God takes seriously. God never takes sin lightly. Look at verse 30. In verse 30, he says, Far be it for me, for those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me, I shall lightly esteem. In other words, if you take me lightly, I will take you lightly. I will take your soul lightly, your life lightly, because you've taken your creator, the one for whom you were created, lightly. Friends, we need to take sin very seriously. And if you think, gosh, why are they talking so much about sin? Read the Bible. This, this isn't our priority. This isn't our pet topic. Especially the front, front half of 1 Samuel, when we see Israel barren of righteousness, this is the focus. Things are bad. And it maps onto our own hearts and our own lives. We are sinful. And it's not to be trifled with. So with that, I want to offer a point of application to three different groups of people. One, to church leaders. So I want to talk to me first and to Jeff, those who are charged with the spiritual leadership of God's people. But also in a secondary no less significant way, also deacons and small group leaders, ministry team leaders, anybody who's in a position of influence within the church. Sins of leaders of God's people tend to corrupt God's people. The, the adage, like pastor, like people, proves true more often than not. A, a church will typically not rise above the standard of holy living of its pastors. So to leaders, to, to Jeff, to me, the charge is to flee sinful passions, to, to flee rebellion against God, to take sin very seriously because our example will have an influence on the behavior and the thinking and the attitudes and the actions of those we serve. So the upshot here, hold your pastors accountable. Keep watch on our lives. 
We, we are not a- above correction. In fact, we're probably those who need it most often. So, uh, and I'm serious here. I, I want to give an open invitation here. And sorry, Jeff, we didn't talk about this before, but Jeff knows this is true. If you see evidence of unchecked sin in our lives, even in a small way, we want you to come and tell us. Even, even today, as you're listening, you're going, yeah, you know what, I've been thinking about that, and I've seen that, and it's concerning. We want to hear it. Not because we're feigning humility, but because we know that holiness, and especially the examples of leaders, are important. And we're talking about the, the health of God's people that, that we don't own. We're under shepherds of the chief shepherd, who's Christ. Second group of people, this is a really big group, but to individual Christians. So if you are a Christian, here I'm talking to you, don't take your sin lightly. Sin, sin and Satan, the enemies of your soul, are subtle and devious. James describes that initial, seemingly harmless giving in to temptation as, as sin being conceived, like a little tiny microscopic, microscopic fetus that really can't really harm. But what do fetuses do? They grow. And sin, when it's been conceived in your heart, it grows and grows, and if it's fed over time, it turns into this soul-consuming monster that leads to what? James says, leads to death. It leads to the outcome of Hophni and Phineas. It's not to be trifled with. So don't, don't ask, when is the point of no return? If, if we're asking that question, we're asking the wrong question. We're, we're saying, how close can I get to the line before I cross it? We all know that's the wrong question to be asking. <laughs> Assume you're not there yet. Praise God that you're not there yet. And turn. R- right now, what, what is that sinful pattern that you've been delaying dealing with and repenting of? Repent today. Do not trifle with it. Third group of people, parents. We have a bunch of new parents in, in this room, parents of small children, some with, with grown children, but, but a lot of new parents. As you're, as you're establishing patterns of parenting in, in your home, do not neglect the discipline of your children. And I'm not just talking about, uh, about disciplining bad behaviors strictly. But God has placed you in their lives to guide and direct them, to instruct them in godliness, to, to correct them off the paths of foolishness. Not merely to suggest a godly way of life like, like Eli. Guys, please don't do this. You won't? Okay, sorry. I'll maybe come and talk about this at another time. Maybe you'll be more receptive then. No. To discipline sinful behavior. To celebrate godly behavior. And to actively be involved in the choices they make in their young lives. You, you're, as a parent, you're not primarily called to be your kids' friends. Oh, you love your kids. I love my kids. But Proverbs 6 says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Nobody has to teach a kid to be selfish. 
Nobody has to teach a kid how to throw a temper tantrum. <laughs> I wish that were the case. <laughs> no one has to teach a kid how to be dishonest and to keep things from, from their parents. Nobody has to teach a kid how to, how to be unkind to their friends. These things are innate. We're born with these things. And if we let these behaviors go unchecked, they grow up to be full-on, soul-consuming, death-inviting monsters in their hearts. One, another scholar said, you can end up in grave sin by thinking it very important to be nice to people. How easy it is to practice a gutless compassion that never wants to offend anyone. Even your kids. And, and, and listen, we never leave love or kindness or gentleness at the door. Proverbs 22.6 paints this beautiful picture when it gives the instruction to train up a child in the way that he should go, pointing him along the paths of righteousness. Even when he's old, he won't depart from it. And, and don't just correct behavior. Address their hearts where that behavior is originating. Help them to see what, what's going on in their hearts in light of a holy God. Knowing that discipline is an expression of, of love. Proverbs 3.12 says, For the Lord disciplines those he loves, just as a human father disciplines the son in whom he delights. It's an expression of love. And, and, and make sure that what you're disciplining is actually sin. <laughs> this is where I make a mistake often. I, I tend to correct and get upset with things that are just annoying to me. Or... or, or destructiveness, my goodness. Kids are walking tornadoes. But they shouldn't be disciplined for what's not sin. Teach them to love righteousness. To not only see the destructiveness of sin, but to love righteousness. Don't, don't provoke your kids by always correcting them. Ephesians 6, 4 says, it says, do not provoke your children to anger. And it's essentially saying, don't be so hard on them that they hate talking about God and his word. Teach them to love righteousness. Show them the way that they should go and say, this is the way that leads to life. And show them how that's sweet. And finally, this is where we're going today. Teach them that they need someone to help them. Teach them that, that they can't do this on their own because mom and dad can't do it on her own either. To give them, they need someone to give them strength. They need someone to bring them back to God. That brings us to the second point. You need a better priest. Our kids need a better priest. Israel needed a better priest than Hophni and Phinehas and it was such a mess at Shiloh in the tabernacle. But remember a few, a few minutes ago when I said, God is so quietly at work that we cannot hear. Well, at the very end of this passage, God's gracious voice becomes very loud. We hear it very clearly. Look at verses 35 and 36. At the end of, of just a, a stunningly difficult curse that God places on Eli and his family, which he's totally just to do, mind you. 
He doesn't have to say what's in verses 35 and 36. Yet God is so stubbornly committed to the good of his people that he says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And anyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please, Put me in one of those priests' places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Effectively, I will raise up a priest for the good of my people, who people want to come to and know they'll receive what they come asking for. Israel's priests had shown themselves effective in one thing, leading toward further rebellion and inviting more judgment. But God says, I'm raising up a priest whose leadership will, ref- will reflect my will. And who is that priest? Well, listen to God's quiet, gracious voice in verses 18 and 19. In the midst of this mess, you probably even just, just glanced over it as though it was an unimportant detail, but in contrast to Hophni and Phinehas, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. While Hophni and Phinehas were turning God's tabernacle into a pagan temple, God's voice is quietly speaking grace through this little boy who's faithfully discharging his priestly duties, who's living a godly life, who's wearing the traditional priestly ephod, doing things right. We see this picture of God quietly moving his people in the direction of his grace, despite the sham that the priesthood was. And and a a little aside of application here, Don't underestimate the power of an individual Christian to live a godly life and have an influence on their surroundings. Have you ever been a part of a church where you go, gosh, this seems like a prayerless church, seems like a spiritually dead and dry church, or or there's no sense of, of, of local mission, of reaching people with the gospel. I don't assume that our church will, will never become that. If you ever do find yourself in that situation, don't be the person who goes, gosh, I see a whole lot wrong here. I think I'm going to leave. Rather, see yourself and your life as an instrument of God's grace to create revival amongst just a few people around you by living a godly life. Another commentator says, how important such believers are who rise above their surroundings And how often God uses them to bring revival to his seemingly lifeless church. That is so sweet. And that's what God's doing here in 1 Samuel 2. God was actively using Samuel. He would be the priest that God raised up to guide his people back. But at the end of the day, verse 35 is only partially referring to Samuel. And why? Because just as, as David was the fulfillment of the need for a better king, he was not the perfect fulfillment. He was still a sinner who, who needed atonement himself. And same thing with Samuel. 
Reflecting on Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, which is our call to worship today, saying how every priest who offers sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people first had to offer sacrifices to atone for their own sins. Samuel was a better priest, but he wasn't a perfect priest. God is talking here in verse 35 about a perfect priest. And friends, if you want to know who this is, Look down at verse 26. Verse 26 carries echoes of glory. Verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Where have you heard those words before? Yeah. Somebody said Jesus. It was Christopher. But yeah, I mean, if you've heard those words before... You've heard them from the Gospels. Luke 2.52. You you just replaced the word Samuel with Jesus. Samuel was was a, a giant neon arrow pointing forward to Jesus. Samuel was a better priest. Jesus would come and establish himself as the perfect priest. God says he'll raise up a faithful priest who will intercede for his people forever. Ever to stand before his anointed forever. He raised up his own son who provided not only a better intercession, but a better sacrifice. Hebrews 7:27. Again, he has no need like those high priests of whom Samuel was one, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the for the of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. Friends, Jesus came as a perfect priest. And and, and what nobody expected is that he didn't come to offer a better lamb or bull or goat. Since Hebrews 10 says what we all know to be true, that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. And the whole law of Moses was intended to portray that. To show the people, we need something better. The blood of bulls and goats can't atone for the sins of men and women who were created in God's image and had spurned that very God. Yet Jesus comes to intercede for sinners, to stand in the place of sinners, and to offer himself an unblemished person, one who never had to offer a single sacrifice for himself to atone for his own sin because he never sinned. And when he willingly hung on the cross, he did so in our place, offering himself as a sacrifice so that our sins would be completely atoned for. Eli's question, who can intercede for the one who sins against God. Jesus. That's the Bible's message. We need a better priest. We need a better king. And you need a better priest to get you to that king, to be reconciled to that king. Jesus is both of those things. He's the better king you need, and he's a better priest that you need. Friends, good news doesn't get any better than that. 
We can become so familiar with the gospel message that it's like, ah, Jesus died for my sins. But we infrequently comprehend how deep and desperate our need was. We could not reconcile ourselves back to God, but, but through Jesus, he became our perfect priest to bring us to the perfect king that we need. So friends, as we close, don't take Eli's question lightly. That's a, that's a question that speaks to the fundamental need every single person here needs to deal with. Who can intercede for those who have sinned against God? And apart from Jesus, there is no answer to that. And apart from Jesus, the judgment that God issued to Hophni and Phinehas stands on you today. Don't take sin lightly. But friends, also rejoice that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, that God refused to let judgment be the last word on your life because he promised a better priest and he gave a better priest. Friends, today, trust in Jesus. If you have sinned against God, and you have, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus can intercede for you. Trust in him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you promised a better priest. We thank you that even though we, we too infrequently live with, with the reality that we need someone to stand in our place to reconcile us to the God who created us, you constantly supply your son. And by faith we receive him. By your grace, through the faith which you've given to us, Lord, we receive the intercession of your son. Lord, teach us to take sin very seriously, but also to rejoice all the more in the supplication of Jesus for our sin, that we might be reconciled to you, our great King. It's in his name we pray. Amen.